Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Good day to everyone. Welcome back. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and welcome to What Christians Should Know, the podcast. This is episode 2.11, where our topic of discussion will be, what is the relationship between the Christian and the state? As we've been doing for the past couple of episodes, we're going to split this podcast into three different episodes. In today's podcast, the first episode, we'll talk about the biblical descriptions on what the state or what secular authority is, what it's supposed to do, and how the church and the state interact in any society. In part two, we'll talk about civil obedience and civil disobedience. And in part three, we'll devote a significant amount of time towards talking about justice, an overriding concern in the Bible that is particularly relevant when it comes to talking about the state. So let's get started. So what is the state? Martin Luther once wrote, Oblige me to write once again about secular authority and its sword. How can a Christian use be made of it and how far do Christians owe it obedience? This question was asked hundreds of years ago, and God's answer as revealed to us in the Bible has remained the same. Yet in modern society, the answer may vary depending upon whom you ask. So, the purpose of this lesson is to equip you with clarity and meaningful answers as to what the biblical model for Christian behavior is when it comes to relating to the state, even when that authority is doing something that you do not agree with. In contrast to prior lessons, This episode will dive into history and dabble a little bit in political theory for obvious reasons. In order to know how the Christian and the state interact, we first have to define what the state is. So when I say the state, I am referring to government, which in America functions at all levels, federal, state, and local. I am making no distinction between different types of governments like democracy, socialism, or monarchy, because the biblical principles on how Christians and the state interact are independent of the type of system a person is governed by. The state, then, consists of governing bodies, institutions, and the people that represent it. The state can be big, like the president and the IRS, or much smaller, like your town's local police force. In the 21st century, unless you literally live in the middle of nowhere, every person lives under the authority of some type of government. Therefore, having a solid biblical foundation on how Christians relate to the state is crucial. The role of the state became a pressing concern once the community of New Testament believers was established. Why? Because they became the first missionary church and spread out all over the world to different peoples who were ruled by different governments, each having a varying response to the new group of Christians. Nowadays, people tend to associate Christianity with the West, but Christians live under the authority of a wide array of governments all over the world. Most governments, generally speaking, are amicable to Christianity. So what makes the state the state? The answer is simple, the legal use of force. Legal, of course, means that there is some form of official regulation or set of guidelines that guides how the state works. Within said guidelines, the state is given the power to compel people to do certain things 
and not to do certain things. This is why the IRS can compel people to pay their taxes and why a police officer can compel you not to make a right turn at an intersection. It would be illegal if Starbucks compelled you to pay your taxes. Of course, the state is given power to use force by necessity. Otherwise, everything that it did would amount to nothing more than a soft suggestion. No government is self-existent, but rather comes into being because of the consent of a group of people who decide to form some type of governing body. This is exactly what happened when the founding fathers of the United States came together to write the United States Constitution, which created the United States government. So, God makes people, and then people form the state. Logically speaking, the state is a creation of God's creation or human beings. And speaking of creation, if we look to the first chapter of Genesis, we can begin to see the principle of government in the creation narrative. In Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and have dominion over living creatures. Granted, Adam and Eve were not given power over other people, but the principle of a dominant order in the natural world exists in the Bible's first chapter. Ultimately, as I have written many times before, God is sovereign and the earth is his. Everything rests on the rule and power of the Lord. So what is a state supposed to do? Quite simply, to restrain evil. Martin Luther once wrote, How the secular sword and law are to be employed according to God's will is thus clear and certain enough, to punish the wicked and protect the just. Another reformer, John Calvin, wrote in Institutes of the Christian Religion that the state is provident to establish justice in conduct. He would then clarify that specifically the state should accommodate the way we live to the requirements of human society, mold our conduct to civil justice, reconcile us to one another, and uphold and defend the common peace and tranquility. One of the earliest and most clear explanations of what the king, and thus by implication the state, is supposed to do is found in Deuteronomy 17. This explanation is given to Israel before they enter into the promised land as a warning from God not to follow how the kings of other nations operate. That is, these kings grow massive armies, prefer the Egyptian way of doing things, have plenty of wives, and make themselves rich at the expense of the people. God explicitly commands his people to follow his prescriptions for what the king should do. God's prescription of what the king should do is clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. The text says, Now it shall come about when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. What is so interesting is that these verses make clear that the king's primary job is not to host wine and cheese parties in the grand hall of the palace, nor does God's command elevate the king above his countrymen. God defines the role of the king, the head of the Israelite government, as someone dedicated to God's law, 
so that he may observe all of it. The law has more than 600 commands, and it was impossible to keep all of them all the time. So, being a king, or being the head of the state, according to Deuteronomy 17, was not a fun job. Of course, when the text refers to this law and these statutes, this refers to God's law, which is what God gave to Israel on top of Mount Sinai. The law has a concrete emphasis on the preservation of human life, protecting human property, and justice in interpersonal affairs. This is why within the law, some of the first commands to the people are not to murder, not to steal, not to bear false witness, and not to covet. This also coincides with the creation ordinance given by God in Genesis, where he blessed the man and the woman and declared that human life is sacred. The Old Testament king, as head of the nation of Israel, would therefore be acutely aware of these concepts in God's law. There is thus clear biblical support for the notion that the state is supposed to protect human life, protect property, and uphold justice. In fact, these three ideals, life, property, and liberty, are held to be so true and timeless that even non-theologians or people not well-versed in the Bible have touted quote-unquote natural law or the idea that all human beings have the God-given natural rights of personhood, property, and liberty. Accordingly, natural law is proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence. Even more, the contemporary American ideal of freedom and the construct of the state can be traced back to Frederick Bastiat and what he wrote about natural law in his famous treatise, The Law. Consider his words. If every man has a right of defending, even by force, his person, his liberty, and his property, a number of men have the right to combine together to extend, to organize a common force, to provide regularly for this defense. Collective right, then, has its principle, its reason for existing, its lawfulness in individual right, and the common force cannot rationally have any other end or any other mission than that of the isolated forces for which it is substituted. The common force cannot lawfully be used to destroy the person, the liberty, or the property of individuals or of classes. So in Bastiat's language, the common force or the state is formed by people who all have natural rights, and the purpose of the common force is to protect the interests of said people. So what attempts to harm the interests of the people? Evil does. Evil wants to destroy human life, like murder. Evil wants to rob people of their property, like theft and eminent domain. And evil lusts after injustice, like lying under oath. It is no coincidence, then, that Jesus says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy in John 10.10. 10. So, the state exists to restrain evil, the thing that seeks to rob us of life, property, and liberty, and the state also exists to provide regularly for this defense. The state over the course of modern history has also been seen as the final arbiter in resolving legal disputes and upholding contracts. But here's a question worth asking. Hasn't the state been the cause of so much evil in recent past? And the answer is yes, and some horribly bad examples come to mind, like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. The bottom line is that no government is perfect, 
and every adult can think of an example of government waste, fraud, and corruption. Ultimately, the state, even the really bad ones, did not catch a sovereign god by surprise. They all work according to his providence. In fact, in the book City of God, the great theologian Augustine claimed that the state in and of itself was evil. But that evil is necessary in order to restrain more evil. This restraint, of course, is executed by the state in order to facilitate peace, man's supreme good. So on the one hand, we live in a fallen creation and therefore invariably, the state will be composed of sinful people. When groups of sinful people are given power and authority to use legal force over others, some very disastrous consequences can result. On the other hand, in a society of complete lawlessness, where the state does not exist, everyone is free to do what is right in their own eyes without any form of external compulsion. This is a world where you could amicably be walking to your car and be shot in the head or be robbed at gunpoint because no system is in place to restrain evil. Biblically speaking, lawlessness is always a formula for chaos. In fact, a Christian's arch nemesis is a recalcitrant and stubborn person of lawlessness who refuses to obey any form of authority. Hence, the Bible never prescribes unrestrained freedom because freedom without limits actually ends up destroying freedom. So, the state must limit freedom in order to restrain evil. For example, murder is evil and in order to restrain it, murder carries the penalty of death, at least in some states. Theft is evil and carries with the penalty of jail and just compensation. In any decent society, no one is free to murder and no one is free to steal. I hope you're enjoying this podcast and I hope what Christians should know in general has benefited you and helped you to grow your faith. But I'm taking a brief pause because I need your help. I'm asking all of my listeners to rate and review the What Christians Should Know podcast so that we can grow our audience and let others know where they can find sound Bible teaching. So if you're using an iPhone, you can rate WCSK by finding us using the podcast app. And if you're not using an iPhone, you can find WCSK through the iTunes store. So I urge everyone to please act now, rate WCSK, and let the world know why the program has empowered you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now back to our program. Next, we're going to talk about the church and the state. So there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of the church and the kingdom of the state. As I discussed in a prior podcast episode, the church is prescribed to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, worship God, grow believers, etc. The state is supposed to restrain evil, protect life, collect taxes, maintain law and order, etc. The state is never supposed to preach the gospel. The church is never supposed to maintain a standing army. The state has the power of the sword and the church does not. And the power of the sword simply refers to the state's ability to force its citizens to do certain things like pay taxes. The power of the sword also involves the promotion and maintenance of justice in order to secure the liberty of the weak against those who have more power. 
This sword power is obviously necessary because if an invading army shows up on the tip of Lower Manhattan tomorrow, you wouldn't want your pastor to come to the rescue. On the other hand, Christ, as the head of the church, came to spread the good news and not to declare war. The keys to the kingdom of heaven rest with the church and not the state. This explains why Christian evangelism is never violent or coercive. The symbol of Christianity is the cross, not a weapon, and we figuratively build up the church by proclaiming the gospel, a peaceful, voluntary exercise. So yes, the crusaders of old got that point wrong. Consequently, the kingdoms of the church and the state coexist, but they do not overlap. Both are absolutely necessary, both deserve the utmost esteem, and neither ought to impede on the domain of the other. While many in modern society appreciate that the church and the state have different roles, this does not mean the two kingdoms fail to interact. In fact, separation of church and state is not a term codified in any document that bears legal significance in the United States. So, for example, neither does the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, nor the Bill of Rights have the term separation of church and state in it. The term was first used by Thomas Jefferson in a letter to the Danbury Baptists in 1802. I'll read a short snippet of that letter. Jefferson wrote, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people which declare that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. History has been reinterpreted so that many in the 21st century are led to believe that Jefferson's wall of separation means that the state should be godless and completely secular. However, from the content of the letter, it is clear that this was not Jefferson's intent. And for those who are curious, I do provide the full content of the letter in the written lesson available on WCSK.org. When he used the phrase separation of church and state, what he was trying to say is that in order to guarantee the free exercise of religion amongst all people, there should not be a formally adopted state religion. In other words, the state should not pick a favorite religion and instead simply guarantee the liberty of the church and protect it against those forces that wish to destroy it. This appears quite logical, considering that many who fled to America hundreds of years ago did so in order to escape religious persecution abroad because of a state-sanctioned church. Many Puritans, for example, left the Anglican Church of England and fled to the United States in order to escape jail and even death for non-conformity to state-sanctioned religious practices. Notice here how the church perversely used the power of the sword to enforce church mandates. The Bill of Rights guarantees that the state is tolerant of all religions, and tolerance never makes a claim on which religion is in fact valid. This is a question on which the state remains silent. The government is not in a position to say that Buddhism, for example, is true, while Judaism is not. The state simply acts to allow said religions to practice their religion freely. Notably, this concept works the other way as well, 
So even if a religion believes that it is quote-unquote right, it should never petition the state to use its power to preferentially treat one religion over the other. So, for example, if I was the head of a local church and I wanted the governor to build a life-size replica of Solomon's temple, that is never a matter for the state and is never an expense for the taxpayers. Why? Because in this scenario, the state is picking a favorite and financing the requests of one religion over the other. This is an example of where Jefferson's wall that separates the church and the state should be raised higher. Still, while Jefferson's wall was meant to define the roles of the church and the state, it did not preclude the interaction of the church with all civil government. So, while the wall delineated the constitutional jurisdiction of the state on religious concerns, this does not mean people were prevented from walking through the gates in that wall and talking to one another. History validates this point. Consider that two former presidents, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, both attended church services in the House of Representatives. In fact, worship services were held in the House until after the Civil War. And throughout his presidential administration, Thomas Jefferson permitted church services to be held in executive branch buildings. So when we actually consider the context of Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists and look at what history actually tells us, when it comes to the separation of church and state, there seems to be more of an intimate dialogue between the two as opposed to a divisive wall. And to top this all off, Americans must brace the idea that our nation was founded on the principle of natural law or that all human beings are imbued with certain inalienable rights as a function of God. In fact, theistic principles heavily informed the founding ideas, philosophies, and laws that brought the American state into existence. Hence, although there is a wall of separation in the jurisdictions of the church and state, theistic principles were used to lay the foundation of the state. By necessity, then, the state cannot be godless because it is a belief in the creator that inspired the state's creation in the first place. The government was never meant to guide its people less God. This is why the Declaration of Independence opens up by saying, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we say one nation under God. Quite simply, an American state without God fails to be American. Furthermore, as the state protects the church, we as believers also pray for our leaders and all those who are in authority over us. So in the same way that we pray for our elders and pastors in the church, we pray for our local authorities, judges, state representatives, congressmen, senators, our president, etc. You still pray for them even if you don't like any of their policies because once again, the state is ordained by God. The church will always maintain its prophetic witness, so when the state tries to invade the jurisdiction of the church, it professes a stern mandate to turn back. Because one of the main functions of the state is to protect life, When the state enacts laws or engages in behavior that is harmful to life, the church raises its voice loudly and critically. 
This is not the church being nosy or bossy, rather what it is supposed to do as prescribed by God. So, as R.C. Sproul has written, In the controversy over abortion, when the church is critical of the state with respect to the idea of abortion, people are angered and say, the church is trying to push its agenda on the state. However, the primary reason that government exists is to protect, maintain, and support human life. When the church complains about abortion laws in America, the church is not asking the state to be the church. The church is asking the state to be the state. It is simply asking the state to do its God-ordained job. In other instances, the state can even try to elevate itself above God's law and perversely attempt to tell God what to do. When God defined marriage, for example, he did so as a union between one man and one woman. Yet when the state codifies marriage as something different, the state is pretending to act like God by redefining a creation ordinance. Once again, the church that sternly protests such abominable acts is acting in line with what it is called to do. The state was never ordained to override the rule of God, only to operate in line with the rules by which God has already put forth. It naturally follows that the state also has no authority when it concerns internal matters of church discipline. That will be all for part one. Join me next week when we talk about the Christian living in subjection to the state and the Christian living in defiance of the state. God bless and see you next time. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including written transcripts, a bookstore, and online Bible study, please visit wcsk.org.